Hi guys, welcome to Nelson Covenant Church, our online offering. I'm Pastor Jeff Strong, and this morning we're going to be moving back into the book of Revelation. I started this series at the start of the pandemic last spring, have broken it into little pieces. We are about halfway through, but we haven't moved into and through Revelation for a number of months. So what I wanted to do this morning was provide a bit of a recap. And because of the nature of the information that I'm going to be sharing, I thought what I would do is record the message again and give you access to a number of visuals. I'll also post uh, this presentation at the PowerPoint online because there's a lot of information here. And if all you're seeing is me present, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of things that slip through the cracks. So I think one of the important ways for me to convey this information is to do so visu visually. That being said, although we aren't going to um, study any particular passage within Revelation, it'd be good to have your Bible open to Revelation. It would be good to have a pen and paper to just make notes on things that stand out to you. The more you can actively engage in the message, the, the greater likelihood that different dimensions of it are going to stick. And that's really important. That's there, there's a kind of a way to study scripture that is kind of passive. And those have their place. We're just listening. We're not really actively chewing and mulling things over or asking questions or discussing it. But there comes a time for more active engagement. And Sunday mornings is one of those times. So let me open a prayer. And then we'll move into this kind of recap and review of this strange, powerful, interesting, provocative book. God, I thank you for this book. I have avoided teaching on it for a long time because it just seems impenetrable, just incredibly wacky and strange. And I haven't always understood how to make it applicable to people's lives. And I thank you that you're uh, leading me towards uh, scholars and pastors and theologians who are teaching me how to do that. And I'm excited to share that with this community. I pray that as we continue to move through Revelation, we would be given a vision for your glory and power, and it would steal us with courage and spurn us towards greater, kind of spur us towards greater faithfulness and a deeper pursuit of following you, even when times are incredibly tough. Bless our community, God. Teach us to walk in faithfulness to you. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start off with a quote. Uh, I just received Greg Beale's, sorry, G.K. Beale's revelation, a shorter commentary in the mail two weeks ago. It was recommended by a number of uh, people and I have started reading it and it is fantastic. I did get the shorter commentary, which is only 750 pages. His longer commentary is like 1400 pages. This is the more readable one. Here's a great quote that he very early on plants uh, at the start of his book. He says, one of the great tragedies in the church in our day is how revelation has been so narrowly and incorrectly interpreted with an obsessive focus on the future end time with the result that we have missed the fact that it contains many profound truths and encouragements concerning Christian life and discipleship. 
I love that. And that got me thinking, when was the last time I've read Revelation as a guide for here and now discipleship? Normally, well, it's been normalized to go to Revelation if we want to find out about the end times or the end of all things. But would Revelation be a book that you would think about, would occur to you on an instinctive level to say, I wonder what it means to follow Jesus faithfully today, right now. I don't think, I don't think for a lot of people, myself included, Revelation would come to mind. But I think Beale's right. It has a lot in there about teaching us how to walk with Jesus here and now. But we haven't necessarily been trained to see it. So that's what I want to do as I go through it, to train, allow God to train me to see this book as not just a collection of prophecies about the end of days, but a guide to how to live faithfully for him now. A guide to address the question, how now should I live? And that's an important question at the best of times. And we are not in the best of times. We are in a, you know, we're in the long game of a pandemic and we are tired and we are frustrated. And there is all kinds of anxiety bubbling up around what's happening next. We need guidance and direction on how to stay focused on Jesus and his mission here and now. And Revelation can help us do that. So some recap, whether you're joining us and kind of jumping into the series now, or you've been tracking with us, but you kind of are fuzzy and forgetful regarding some of these details of Revelation, let's get everybody on the same page. Authorship is the Apostle John during the reign of Domitian which occurred 81 to 96. A lot of the most uh, significant weight of scholarship would place the writing of Revelation probably around 92 AD. So about um, a generation and a half from the resurrection of Jesus. John has been uh, sentenced to isolation, to death on the island of Patmos, and he's given a, a revelation. He's given an apocalypse which culturally we think of as like a really bad scenario, but apocalypse in the actual Greek word, it just means to reveal something that was previously hidden, to unveil something. So that's why this book is called The Revelation. It's not revelations, uh, plural. It's There's one revelation, and it's of Jesus and his power and what's happening in the world. So what kind of book is Revelation? This is really important when we are getting down to the nitty gritty in terms of interpreting particular passages, we don't interpret a poetry book according to historical parameters, nor do we um, interpret a book of prophecy according to historical parameters. So what kind of book is revelation? There's kind of three dimensions to the book. There is an apocalyptic dimension a prophetic dimension, and it also functions as an epistle, which is a really fancy sort of Christian word for letter. So let me explain those. So an apocalyptic book is a book or a kind of writing that reveals reality behind the curtain. It usually uses very intense and shocking imagery to sort of snap people out of a slumber and it's giving a heavenly perspective on events that are taking place on earth. 
that occurs pretty obviously in Revelation. Lots of symbolism, lots of striking, shocking imagery. And so Revelation is in part an apocalyptic book, but it's also a prophetic book. Now, some people think of prophecy as just referring to prediction of future events. And that's true. That's an element of prophecy, of biblical prophecy. That's a foretelling of events which haven't occurred, but will occur in the future. But another dimension of prophetic teaching is that uh, the prophets, and especially the prophetic literature of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, aren't just about foretelling future events. They're a forth-telling meaning they are commanding God's people. They are encouraging God's people to say, this is, we're, we're, I'm pulling, I'm, pu- I'm pulling, I'm getting you behind the curtain. I want to show you reality as it really is so you can go forth in confidence, especially when it looks like from your perspective, not only are you under attack, but your very lives are threatened. So there's a foretelling and a foretelling dimension of Revelation. It's a mistake to just think about it as a book that predicts future events. And lastly, it also serves as a letter. The opening and the ending of the book have all the hallmarks of a New Testament letter. There are actual letters addressed to seven churches that directly speak to very particular situations and problems faced by early Christians in this context. And so Revelation has to be read, learning to hold together these three dimensions in mind, that there's parts of the book that are apocalyptic, parts of it that are prophetic, but it also functions like a letter. And that has to inform how we interpret certain symbols, passages, allusions. Now, one of the things to be aware of is that the overlap, if you think of a Venn diagram, one circle and another, and then there's an overlap, there is a high degree of overlap between the book of Revelation and the prophetic Old Testament books of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. Uh, G.K. Beale and many other authors uh, kind of share this conviction that it is difficult. I don't think they would say impossible, but a few of them would come right up to that line. It is difficult. Maybe we would say extremely difficult to properly understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. Why do we say that? Because 278 out of the 404 verses that are contained in Revelation contain direct references to things that are already spoken about in the Old Testament. So almost 75%, three quarters, three out of every four verses directly reference something in the Old Testament. And then when we move to something a little bit softer, like an indirect allusion to a theme or image or symbol or event, in Revelation that's also connected to the Old Testament, that goes to over 500. Over 500 allusions to the Old Testament texts are made in Revelation. Many of those coming from Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. And then when you look at the major themes that show up in the book of Revelation, 
and cross-reference them with Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, there is a high degree of overlap, judgment, tribulation, idolatry, divine protection, victorious end-time battles, falling away, spirit, that the spirit of God empowering God's people. All of those themes come together in Revelation. And so it's very important for us to just tuck that piece of knowledge away, that one of the important um, mechanisms that we need to adopt in trying to understand and interpret and therefore apply revelation properly is to make sure we're interfacing regularly with the old Testament. The least, if we, the more unfamiliar, right? The greater our unfamiliarity with the old Testament, the more likely we will misread, misinterpret, and therefore misapply the book of revelation. So it's the last book of God's entire library, but it is firmly anchored in references and allusions in the Old Testament, and it brings to completion what God wants to do in history. By far the most important key to understanding John's vision is understanding the Old Testament. Most people take Revelation as a springboard for looking forward. However, without first looking back to the Old Testament and seeing what it meant in John's time, and then moving forward from there to the present, we will not properly understand what it has to say about the past, the present, or the future. If I were to sum up the point of Revelation in one sentence, and there's many ways you could do this, but for this recap, let me phrase it like this. Revelation as a book makes known God's perspective. It reveals to us God's purposes in history. Why? So that believers in Jesus across every age, no matter when they live, are equipped with a vision for victory and so that they will remain faithful. That to me is the point of the book. Revelation makes known God's perspective and purposes in history so that believers in Jesus are equipped with a vision for victory and will therefore remain faithful to Jesus. The focus on the revelation John received from God is how the church is to conduct itself in the midst of an ungodly world. The heavenly revelation gives an entirely different perspective from that offered by the world. Believers are faced with the choice of lining their lives and conduct up with one perspective or the other And their eternal destiny depends on that choice. So it is an imminently practical book for every Christian, past, present, and those who may live in generations to come. Breaking down the book, there are kind of two obvious chunks, chapters one to three, which is the introduction to the letter, and then an outline of messages that are given to seven churches in the region. And then in chapters four through 21, we're, th- this is sort of the apocalypse. This is the revealing, a behind the scenes look at the nature of the spiritual battle raging behind the scenes. And then kind of some, some direct instruction, but also inferred instruction regarding how should we respond given that 
our eyes deceive us and there's more than meets the eye going on. And that suspicion is actually fleshed out and we're shown things that ought to cause us to recalibrate our understanding of our own suffering on hardships and persecution that we may be enduring or that we see happening in the world. Revelation discloses the nature of the spiritual battle happening around us so that we can respond more faithfully to Jesus. One of the things that I've done at the start of this, I I don't think I did it right at the start, a few weeks in, is I introduced the fact that there are four ways of interpreting Revelation. Now, right off the hop, last week I talked about four Christian worldviews, liberal, progressive, evangelical, and fundamentalist. These four views don't line up with those. So those have no connection at all. So they're not built, you know, one view isn't the liberal view, one view isn't the progressive view. In fact, the four views that I've been talking about as we've gone through Revelation are all within the evangelical spectrum. And we talked about how if you just take out the reformed evangelicals like um, uh, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, um, Kevin DeYoung, and the, uh, the reformer of the reformers, Martin Luther, each of those guys are firmly in kind of the evangelical leaning towards fundamentalist camp in some ways. And yet they each had a different um way of interpreting revelation. So we're not talking about these four views in the context of the four views that I talked about last week. We're talking about four views that the um, Orthodox or evangelical church has always, or has, um, has grappled with ways of, of knowing and understanding the text. So these are all views that kind of work and are complementary with an evangelical framework. I'm going to go through each view, but what I'm going to do this time uh, is not just recap them, but I'm going to share with you what most theologians and biblical scholars and uh, those who have spent a lifetime in the book of Revelation see as the relative strength and weaknesses of each view. So the first is the preterist view. Okay, preterist refers to the past. All these have kind of wonky names, but don't let the names uh, throw a curveball. So preterist just refers to the past. And this view essentially says the entire book of Revelation was given before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So this is an artistic depiction of the fall of Jerusalem. And and this view says um, before that happened in 70 AD as an event during the Jewish war, at the end of the Jewish war, Revelation was given a number of years earlier, and almost everything in that book, save maybe for the final judgment and second coming of Jesus and installation of a new heaven and new earth, but like chapters 1 through 19 have already happened. When we read Revelation, according to the preterist view, we're reading ancient history. Now you might say, that's kind of strange. What are the strengths of this view? Well, this view has quite a few strengths. Number one, the view takes seriously the words that are used to frame the entire book. The book begins with the words, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him 
to show his servants what must soon take place. It seems strange that the book would open like that if it's a collection of prophecies about things which are going to take place thousands of years into the future. So this view takes seriously that framing of the entire book and how it's how it seems to be asked to be read right from the get-go. Another point that's a strength is that many events of the Jewish war that happened between AD 66 and 70 find strong parallels with events and judgments depicted in Revelation. Sometimes there seems to be even a one-to-one correlation. What are the weaknesses of the view? Well, most scholars would agree for a number of factors, which I won't get into, but I can give you info if you'd like to do a bit of a quick study on it. It's very unlikely Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And even if you were going along with this view, what it would commit you to is every time Babylon is referenced in the book of Revelation, it would be referring to the uh, uh, rebellious Israel, the nation of Israel, which rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The, The problem with that is that Babylon is never used in ancient Jewish or cult or, or Christian literature to ever refer to any nation other than Rome. In fact, across the spectrum of all of many of these different interpretations, one shared conviction is that if we can know anything about the book of Revelation, when it talks about Babylon, when it makes reference to Babylon, it's certainly talking and making direct reference to the Roman Empire. But in this view, you would have to shift that to rebellious Israel, and this is a prophecy of a successive number of judgments being meted out against a, um, a rebellious people. Daniel says that the end-time judgment is going to be universal, not on one nation, and so that's another point of caution that people point to to say, mm, I'm not totally sold on the preterous perspective. And also, lastly, this book would become logically, less and less relevant for every Christian living after these events, right? The farther you get away from the prophecies that were fulfilled back in this book and that were so much a part of this book, this book becomes interesting as a case study of historical judgment, but it doesn't really connect in the same way as it, it, it doesn't um, provide a lot of fuel for daily discipleship. It's, it's a history book, which is important and we can learn from, but it has less and less imminent relevance for believers who live afterwards. So that's the preterist view. Almost everything we're reading in Revelation has happened in the past. The next view is the historicist view. And this presents Revelation as a timeline of major historical events. So if you stretch out, you know, between Jesus' coming, the establishment of the church, all the way a thousand years, two thousand years, here we are in 2021, that the seal and trumpet and bull judgments, these refer to particular events that were massively important throughout human history, and some of which will uh, have yet to happen until Jesus' return. Events like the collapse of the Roman Empire, the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformation. What's the strength of this view? Well, Uh, One of the strengths is that this view attempts to sort of stretch out the relevance of the book's prophecies to 
all Christians by connecting prophecies of revelation with big historical events, some or many of which have happened, but a few that haven't. And so it does build in the sense of expectation that these are prophecies that we can look forward to being fulfilled, maybe even in our own time. But there are a lot of weaknesses with this view. And this view, generally speaking, from what I can infer, is the least popular amongst evangelical scholars for a few reasons. Number one, the historicist interpretation. Um, Almost no two historicists come to the same conclusion about what the most important events are. It's a little bit like a Rorschach test of biblical interpretation where you could read 10 different historicist evaluations of Revelation and come up with a very different mixture and combination of historical events. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of consistency. And when you don't have consistent interpretation as a fruit of a, of a hermeneutical or interpretational grid, that's usually a signal that mm, something's, something's not right here. Another weakness of this view is that it often uses the cultural moment to interpret the Bible. So um, what that means is, is whatever is big and important and happening in your generation, that's the thing. That's the mark of the beast. That's, this is the person who's the Antichrist. This is definitely the third bold judgment. And so it always preferences what is happening in the immediate generation. Another weakness is that the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, these cycles of uh, three sets of seven, there's really no direct indication in the text that these occur in any kind of chronological order or that they're connected to Western church history. And most historicists only count big Western or European church events as part of the prophecies of Revelation. So it's a very Western Eurocentric interpretational framework. And it seems to, um, it puts too much pressure on the text to establish a chronological order of these judgments when the text actually gives clues that the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments aren't necessarily to be read as 21 successive judgments. Also, if true, that would mean that Revelation as a book would have little to no significance for those to whom it was originally given. Maybe, again, the first three chapters it would be significant for. But after that, this is dealing with stuff that Christians way down the line, 500, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 3,000 years into the future are going to be dealing with. So, it seems to contradict one of the stated purposes of Revelation, which is to act as an epistle, as a letter, which as a whole addresses um, real problems, real situations, and is meant to be a real relevant encouragement to the church at the close of the first century. Okay, view number three. This is this is the super fun one. This is the action movie uh, left behind series. This is the futurist view. And as you can maybe infer, this view believes that the vast majority of prophecies of what we're reading about in the book of Revelation has yet to happen. It's going to happen in the future over a very compressed timeline. 
So this view holds that the entire book, apart from the letter to the churches, which were obviously given to the church, uh, to those Christian communities in the first century, the entire book is a collection of prophecies that are going to surround the uh, imminent return of Christ at the end of history. So this view interprets the visions given in chapters 4 and 21 literally and chronologically. And these visions refer to a series of events that are going to happen in the future, usually in this order. At some point in the future, no one knows the day or the hour, the rapture of the church is going to happen. Christ's true church is going to be uh, supernaturally, um, I was going to say uh, sucked up, but that's not a, a proper theological term, but would be raptured, taken up, called up into, the, into heaven. Life on earth will continue. That will uh, inaugurate a seven-year tribulation period where there's going to be a rise and reign of one who comes and is an antichrist figure. The nations are going to gather together and wage war against Jerusalem. Christ is going to return with his heavenly army to defeat those nations. Christ is then going to establish a 1,000-year reign. At the end of that 1,000 years, Satan's going to be let out, gather a bunch of unbelievers to counter Christ's heavenly army with a earthly rebellious army. There's going to be a final battle, this battle of Armageddon. Christ, though, is going to be victorious. He's going to defeat Satan, defeat Satan's army. There's going to be a final judgment and then the installation of a new heavens and new earth. Okay, this is the view that most Christians, even if they haven't studied it, they've probably come across it because this is the view that foregrounds a lot of the language of Mark of the Beast, rapture, end times, tribulation period. What are the strengths of this view? Well, it, it really does seek to provide a clear, understandable, relevant timeline of end time events that fits many pieces of New and Old Testament prophecy and warnings together. So it tries to look at all of these symbols and events and imagery and put them together like a timeline, uh, detailed blueprint. Um, and it's doing that because it's, it's really approaching the text with a high level of respect. It believes that God would want to make these kinds of things clear. So to not interpret a lot of this literally would be to miss the point of God who wants his people to be prepared for these end times. What are the weaknesses? Well, interpreters that hold this view are constantly changing their interpretation of historical events. And they're doing this to make what's currently happening fit the pattern, right? So it's always important within this view to be on guard against the mark of the beast. But, you know, a hundred years ago, or, you know, maybe 80 years ago, it was social security. They're giving you a social security number. No doubt. That's the mark of the beast. Oh no, it's, it's area codes. There was a panic in certain parts of rural America when area codes got introduced to the rural communities. They believed that was connected to the mark of the beast, especially because the numbers of the area code were in a set of three, like the number 666. But then that faded. Then it was credit cards. That's going to be the mark of the beast. Then it was artificial intelligence. And today you even hear language of, oh, it's the COVID-19 vaccine. That's the mark of the beast or antichrist. 
Some thought it was Hitler, then it was Stalin, then it was Mikhail Gorbachev, then it was Saddam Hussein or the Pope or Bill Gates. So the same problem exists with this view as exists with the um, historicist view, that it's a bit like a Rorschach test, that there's this warning about this symbol or event, and people can sometimes maybe too quickly, maybe not sometimes, obviously, often say, oh, I know what this is. This is this. And they plunk, they kind of force this round peg in a square hole and say, I feel, yeah, I, th- I think that works. And then people get whipped up into a frenzy and then nothing comes of it. And then we just move on to the next peg and try and fit it in the hole. The Bible is interpreted by modern events first instead of by itself. That's another huge weakness of this view. We're constantly using what's happening here and now as the major lens through which we're interpreting the symbolism and events of the Bible. But we really shouldn't do that with any book of the Bible. Our first step is always to understand the Bible in the context of itself. How does uh, the Bible ask to be read and interpreted on its own terms, using its own language and symbols? What did it mean to the original hearers? And then we begin to do the hard work of saying, how does that apply to us today? This view tends to skip over not all, but much of that and start from events happening today and then read back into scripture a connection that uh, I, I think many critics of this view would say just aren't there. Rapture theology tends to contradict the fundamental message of the book, which is perseverance under persecution and tribulation. One of the big themes, according to the futurist view, is that Jesus is going to rapture his church out of the great tribulation. And yet before that, almost every chapter is focused on preparing and strengthening Christians to endure tribulation. But why? If one of the big parts of God's endgame is to rescue his church before tribulation, why would he spend so much time and energy? Look at the books of the New Testament about persevering under trial and testing and, and, per, and persecution. It just doesn't seem, it's, it's, it's an odd, um, odd juxtaposition. And, and, it's, and it seems to be an internal dissonance, which doesn't fit together nicely. Uh, personally, I've seen end times speculation and anxiety serve as a massive distraction for more pressing priorities of Christian discipleship, growth, maturity, and mission. Now, some people would say getting clear on all this end time stuff is all about discipleship and growth and maturity. But I think whenever we define Christian maturity and growth along a very reductionistic um, band of biblical engagement or topical or thematic engagement, we're in danger. And guys, I have seen tons of people I'm not going to say waste. I'm going to say um, I have seen many people follow very fruitless paths of obsession around trying to connect all the dots and figure out all the X's and O's and read books after books and prophecy update after prophecy update and yet not spend a lot of time thinking through deepening their prayer life, enriching and strengthening their marriage, cultivating a better witness to their children and to their community. 
growing dull and unable to effectively evangelize and care for their neighbors around them. I don't know all the dynamics at play, but I know there are some people where this obsession, often driven by fear of the future, can really distract us from what Jesus calls us to make first priority. Also, another weakness of this view would just be that this whole book would be pretty much completely irrelevant to any Christians not living in the end days, right? If this book is about disclosing the things that are going to happen at the end times, then unless you're living in the end times, it's something you can read and be like, well, that's interesting, but that's going to be someone else's problem down the line. It it creates a kind of distance that doesn't lead to people engaging the book as a guidebook to discipleship here and now. Okay, final view, sometimes called the spiritual or the idealistic view. It's got even fancier terms like the redemptive historical view, which I'll talk about in a moment. But let's just call it the spiritual view or the idealist view. This view sees Revelation as a book that is a symbolic presentation of the ongoing battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of darkness. And so it would look at things like the seal and the bowl and the trumpet judgments and say, these things speak to repeated patterns that occur throughout human history. Whenever the kingdom of God collides with the kingdom of darkness, whenever the kingdom of God gains ground on the kingdom, on any kind of counterfeit kingdom, these are the kinds of things that we should expect. And so according to this view, when someone reads Revelation, what they're reading is general patterns and not just specific events that have a one-to-one correlation with something happening today or in human history. So it's about showing us the nature of the spiritual battle that rages around us and how Christians are called to respond. So much like Ephesians 6, where Paul says, put on the full armor of God, we recognize that that is a symbolic call to armor up and to live into God's truth so that the spiritual attacks that are happening around us don't harm or waylay us. Revelation is sort of like an extended commentary on Ephesians 6. It's not that it's irrelevant. It's actually because it's symbolic and doesn't have to be connected with every single, at every single point with a real life, uh, with a historical event or person, it has relevance to every Christian because there are going to be different beasts and dragons that rise out of the sea. There are going to be different antichrist figures. There are going to be different uh, marks of the beast that will present to Christians in different ages, in different localities, and revelation teaches what our faithful response should look like. So here's the strength of the view. It makes the whole book relevant to every Christian in every age. It gives a powerful vision for victory that's actually designed to help Christians stay strong in the face of suffering and opposition. Um, And therefore, Revelation finds fulfillment in countless events through the church age. It's not wrong to say, wow, the Reformation was a tectonically important event in not just church history, but in global history. Yeah, it was. And if you want to say that's like this part of Revelation, you can. 
but you don't have to tie it there in a direct one-to-one um, uh, reference. You can just recognize it and say that was a major inbreaking of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness that puts the word of God and accessibility to the word of God into the hands of every man, woman, and child. That's amazing. There was lots of pushback from it, but that's what you should expect. That's what Revelation teaches us to expect when the kingdom of God gains ground against counterfeit kingdoms. And that's why elements of the preterist and historicist and futurist view tend to be incorporated, parts of them, into this view. I like this view personally because it grounds Revelation as an epistle, as a letter that speaks directly to daily discipleship for any Christian who looks around them and is tempted to believe not only are we in a battle, but it kind of looks from our vantage point like we're losing. Revelation speaks exactly to that. There's a lot of Christians today looking around the cultural landscape and saying, I feel like we are under attack. I feel like we are losing ground. I feel like we are in a war. And it looks like we're losing. If you feel that way, you should read Revelation with fresh eyes to say, are my eyes deceiving me, God? Is that, is, can I trust that perception? Or do I need to take a peek behind the curtain to see what's really happening, to see who's really in charge? Now, the weakness of this view is that critics will say, there's certain parts of Revelation that are obviously symbolic, but there are some that are so precise in detail, they just get a little, uh, get a little anxious and uneasy reading every aspect of this vision as mirrorless as merely symbolic, especially when there is a direct, precise, literal reference, like the millennial reign of Christ or the number 666. There are some symbols like a dragon coming out of the sea, clearly symbolic. But the more precise something gets, ought we not to interpret it as referring to a literal thousand-year reign of Christ? That would be sort of the critical pushback from... Uh, those who would want to, who would disagree with the spiritual or idealist view. So those are the four ways of interpreting revelation. And I know that even right now, maybe you've had to pause and come back to this video a few times because you're like, oh, Jeff, what in the world? My brain is broken. I get it. I totally get it. Uh, trying to make heads and tails of revelation is incredibly difficult. It's a sophisticated interesting, strange book. And a lot of people just avoid it because of that. But I want to acknowledge, well, I guess it's, it's acknowledging, but it's also admitting I'm not going through Revelation with the goal of saying, I'm going to solve 2000 years of theological uh, dispute and disagreement on the nature of how to interpret Revelation. And I'm going to actually show you guys the right way. No, that's not what this series is about. Okay, I'm not going to come, and I don't think you are, to a firm conclusion regarding the right way to interpret Revelation. That's unlikely to happen. But what I do want to do is to make sure we're learning some checks and balances of biblical interpretation to avoid seriously wrong ways 
of interpreting the book of Revelation. Because theological ideas have consequences. In the early 2000s, when the Bush administration was considering whether or not to go to war in Iraq, George Bush had evangelical pastoral advisors who was advising him to go to war in Iraq based on the prophecies of Revelation, based on the fact that this was about the fulfillment of the nation's Gog and Magog, and this was going to usher in the final battle of Armageddon. That's really dangerous for evangelical leaders to be promoting and nurturing the idea that going to war is actually something that we should be proactive in doing, not as a reactive last measure, but as a way to facilitate end times fulfillment. That's really scary. How many people right now are avoiding the vaccine on the grounds that they believe it is or it could be the mark of the beast. Even though there is literally zero biblical evidence that the mark of the beast is anything connected to something like a vaccine, which we'll get to in a few weeks. It's a completely untenable interpretation. And yet how many hundreds of thousands of people globally are vaccine hesitant because they're concerned this is going to somehow alter their spiritual DNA and undo salvation in Christ or hand their souls or give authority over to Satan in their life. How many times have people, have you heard even recently or the not too distant past, people saying, oh, I know this person, Antichrist. This is, this is the Antichrist. Again, I've heard that about Justin Trudeau. I've heard that about um, Bill Gates. I've heard that about many different popes. I've heard that about Mikhail Gorbachev. When you're calling someone the Antichrist, that isn't something that you should do flippantly. And yet people seem very emboldened with a thin understanding of revelation to start throwing around these labels that have, I mean, that, that is slanderous. That is, it's a sin. It's a sin to slander someone's character. And that's not like saying, I think someone's incompetent. You're calling them the antichrist. And it's all on the back of a seriously wrong way of interpreting revelation. How many people think that anything, any movement by Christians into a creation care perspective where we should be looking for ways to reduce our um, negative impact and leverage as many resources as possible so that we take care of the earth and creation. How many people bristle at that notion because they think, well, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket anyways. So like, who cares? It's all going to burn up. So I mean, that is some people's direct line from a particular way of interpreting Revelation to shaping their discipleship now. And it doesn't shape it in a good way. It deforms it. So our ideas have consequences. And there are lots of symbolic ideas in the book of Revelation 
that if we get really wrong, can take us in really wrong, anti-biblical, and I would argue, ironically, anti-Christ directions. So we have to, our goal isn't to try and figure out the right way to interpret Revelation. It's not going to happen. I'm going to present these views throughout, and you can come to your own conclusions and, and weigh the relative strengths and weaknesses. But I, I will, as we move through this series, come to places where I say, this view might have strengths to it, but this interpretational line from this view, we can say now is incredibly dangerous, and it's not founded on Scripture. And we need to check it. And we need to maybe push back against it. Because Revelation is a book that is supposed to give us God's perspective on what's happening here and now. To ground us in God's purposes for all of history so that we are emboldened, not with, we're filled, not with fear, but with a spirit of courage and faith and self-control to move into the future because we know who has the victory. And we know and are committed that no matter what comes at us, no matter how hard I or the church in Canada or here in Nelson or the church globally gets beat down, we have the victory. And so we move into the future with confidence because of this book, not filled with fear, but faith-filled courage-filled, heartened, and strengthened. So as you go into this new week, and as we move back into the series in the book of Revelation, grace and peace to you, Nelson Covenant Church, from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.